You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 16. Our focus today will be on 16, 25 through 33. I'll be reading 16, 16 through 33. John 16, beginning with verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of the, his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will, be, will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you, because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, In the name of Christ, 
clinging to He who lived to be our righteousness, died bearing our sins, rose conquering our enemies, and now intercedes for us at your right hand. In Christ, we come before you now pleading you would grant your spirit to teach us Christ such that we learn you and draw near. We are unworthy sinners, but you've spoken these words for your people, for our peace, and you are our peace, so draw us close to you now, Father. In the name of Christ, again, we ask this, amen. Our time in the upper room draws to a close. John sixteen twenty-five through 33 is the epilogue to the upper room discourse. This discourse began properly in John 14, 1, but the discourse has a prologue as well as an epilogue. And we do well to revisit it now as we come to the conclusion. And doing so, I think you'll see the cohesion of this discourse as a whole. So John 13, 31 through 38. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say, also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come now. You cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You see these common themes. Yet a little while Jesus is with them. He's going to the Father. He's to be glorified. But the disciples will desert him. You see the same pattern of even... of of this question that Jesus puts forward to His overconfident disciples in both instances, then speaking of their denial. In between the prologue and the epilogue, this discourse is full of sweet gospel morsels to these sorrowful disciples. Not morsels of apostasy, such as Jesus held out to Judas, but morsels of His faithfulness. Promises that right now seem bitter in the mouth, but that will prove nourishing to their souls later. Jesus opens this epilogue by once again saying, verse 25, I have said these things. Jesus has said, I have said a lot in this discourse. And these I have said statements tell you something of the purpose of this whole discourse. John 14, 25 and 26 These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. 
John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John 15, 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. John 16, 1 and 4, but I, or I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. 16, 6 and 7. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. So Jesus is saying these things, you see, because he's soon not going to be with them. He's saying these things for their comfort. He's saying them for their joy, for their peace, for their faith, for their encouragement. Right now, the very words he's saying to them that caused them sorrow will later be remembered such that they give them joy. But here, this I have said statement seems to refer not so much to why, but how. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. Figures of speech refer immediately to that riddle and its explanatory uh, sayings that follow in verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So yeah, it seems that this I have said statement speaks to how, not so much as why, but the how is in harmony with the why. Again and again, the idea in all those And so many of those why statements refer to right now you don't understand or right now you're sorrowful. But later, the Spirit will come. Later you will remember. Later you will rejoice. The confusion they now have will be replaced by clarity later. Verse 25 again, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. These words will come into clarity when they remember. These words will come into clarity when Jesus has risen and ascended. These words will come into clarity whenever the risen and ascended Son with the Father sends the Spirit. They will come into clarity when they're taught by the Spirit these things. They'll come into clarity. We're told in John 16, 12 and 13 in this way. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. On whose authority will the Holy Spirit then speak? You see it right here. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly, About the Father. Being taught by the Christ sent Spirit is to be taught by Christ Himself. Jesus promises, then I will speak plainly 
to you. This is why Jesus, whenever he's promising that he's going to the Father, but he's going to send them the Spirit, can also say, 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now we've seen that in so much of this, there is an exclusive promise that's being made to the disciples. The Spirit comes to the apostles reminding them of what they heard Christ say and teach. We don't receive revelation as they did, but we have received the revelation that they did. And it's in the revelation that they received that there was communion with Christ and knowing Christ. And it's in this revelation that you have communion with Christ. The Spirit-inspired Word is illumined by the Spirit so that you know and learn Christ by the Spirit. The Spirit illuminates for us what the Spirit inspired in them. And this Holy Spirit illuminating of the Word of Christ is Christ teaching us Christ. Saints, we stand on the other side of this clarity. We don't stand in the confusion that's immediately in our text. We stand on the other side of the promised clarity. We're taught by Christ, by the Spirit. So again, I plead with you, don't berate the Holy Spirit as some second-rate substitute teacher. Wishing that you could walk with Christ and learn from Christ as they did. When they walked with Christ, they were in confusion. The clarity came whenever He ascended to the Father and sent them the Spirit. You stand in that exact clarity. You have the Spirit-inspired words. And you have the Spirit to illumine those words. So that Christ teaches you. Not only by the Spirit do you have the Son to teach you, and He teaches you Himself. You have the Spirit so that the Son teaches you the Father. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. The Son reveals and teaches the Father. The Spirit, as He teaches you the Son, works such that the Son comes teaching you the Father. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Let me repeat that again. No one has ever seen God. Either meaning the triune God or the Father. But the only God, the Son, incarnate. The Son who is at the Father's side. And isn't it peculiar that John chooses to refer to the Son at the Father's side? The risen and ascended Son. He has made Him known. After telling the disciples He was going to the Father, Philip asked, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus answered, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. On that side of the cross, they failed to see that Jesus reveals the Father. And now he's promising them on the other side of the cross, when I've gone to the Father, I will teach you plainly about the Father. We now stand with them on the other side of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, beholding Christ as the Spirit teaches us Christ, thus learning the Father. The words that we're reading right now are Jesus' plain words concerning the Father, illumined by the Spirit in the wake of the resurrection, in the light of the ascended Christ. In most red-letter Bibles, John 3.16 is in red. Quotation marks are an interpretive issue. They're not in the original language. They're not a translation issue. And most scholars make very good arguments why we should understand John 3.16-21 through 21 as being John's explanatory statement concerning what Jesus said to Nicodemus. But regardless... You have there the apostolic words of John received by the Spirit for the people of God as a revelation of Christ that reveals the Father. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What revelation there is of the Father in the Son by the Spirit given to the people of God. The Spirit teaches us Christ. It's that Christ comes to us teaching us the Father. And then Jesus transitions from His teaching the Father to our asking the Father in verses 26 and 27. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. This asking happens on the same day as this promised teaching. In that day. What day? The hour is coming. Same time. Jesus is teaching us that's held out for them later, that we are privileged to enjoy now, Jesus' teaching is not theoretical. It's practical. It is work-out theology. It's teaching that leads to asking. The result of this teaching, the result of their learning the Father, is they cry out to the Father... The Spirit comes as the Spirit of adoption. You learn that you're adopted in the Son so that you cry out, Abba, Father. 
J.C. Ryle wrote, No one has ever learned of Christ so deeply as the man who is ever drawing near to the Father through the Son. Goes on. Ever feeling more childlike confidence in Him and ever understanding more thoroughly that in Christ God is not an angry judge but a loving Father. You want to know where the Spirit really works? It's where Christ is spoken of. And if you want to know where Christ is truly teaching His people by the Spirit, it's where they draw near to the Father through the Son. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 gives us the shape of this Trinitarian communion where Paul closes with this benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. If you have communion with the Spirit, it's a communion in the grace that is in Christ And with that grace, you recognize and enjoy the love of God the Father. This drawing near, we're told, happens through the Son, in His name. In that day, you will ask, in my name. It happens as He is our mediator. Assumed in this is the ascension of Christ, our great high priest at the Father's right hand. This intimate communion with the Father that's being held out to us here, held out to them as a promise to be enjoyed, will happen because Jesus goes to the Father. It's good news that He goes to the Father. You draw near to the Father because I leave you. Hebrews 7.25 says that because Christ is a forever high priest. And the idea there, as it's presented in Hebrews, is that He's entered into the heavenlies. To present himself before the Father. Because he is a forever high priest, it says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Ephesians 2.18 tells us, For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. You see the shape of it there again? Through Christ, in one spirit, we come to the Father. But Jesus here quickly goes on to tell us, and this is the most glorious thing I think Jesus says in this closing. He goes on to tell us what His mediatorship does not mean. He does not want us to misunderstand His mediatorship. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. This is a weird mediatorship. I don't say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you. Jesus being our mediator does not mean distance from, but drawing near to the Father Himself. 
It is not that you have a loving Jesus who brings you before an otherwise wrathful father. Too often that is how the gospel is presented. And it's dangerous because there's just enough truth in it that it sounds palatable and true. But the truth is that God so loved that He gave. He gave His Son. And He gave His Son a people that those people might through the Son draw near to Him. All of this is a testimony to the Father's love. The Father's not antagonistic. The Father's not even indifferent. The Father loves. You do not lay your concerns down at the feet of Jesus. For Jesus then to carry those away to the Father. You come to Jesus as your mediator. Jesus brings you before the Father Himself. It's not simply that you take your prayers to the mediator. And He brings them before the Father, though that's true. The mediator brings you praying before the Father. He doesn't just bring your prayers. He brings you praying to the Father. You do not need Mary. You do not need all the saints. You have Christ. And you draw near to the Father Himself in Christ. Yes, Christ intercedes for us. But the way He intercedes for us is not by creating some kind of distance, but by drawing us nigh unto the Father. Don't forget it is the Son who taught us to pray our Father, who art in heaven. Hebrews 10, 19-22, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Souls, are you not now being taught something by the Spirit through the Word of Christ, being taught Christ Himself such that you're grasping hold of Christ, treasuring Christ, recognizing that in so doing, you draw near to the Father. Is there not something of this stirring in your soul even now? I pray that so. But what Jesus says next, you might think, creates some kind of tension between verses 26 and 27. In that day, you will ask the Father in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. So I said it's not that a loving Jesus draws us nigh to a wrathful Father. 
And you may feel that this does create some of that very distance. The Father loves us because we love the Son. As though there's some kind of work we do that is the cause of the Father's love for us. There are two reasons that I do not see such a tension between verses 26 and 27. The first is, already having God as our Father, we then come in Jesus' name, and that statement explains what it means to come in Jesus' name. To come in Jesus' name means coming before the Father, loving Jesus, and believing in Jesus. To come in Jesus' name before the Father in prayer means to come clinging in love and faith to Christ. And then second, and I think this is the one that's really helpful to understand this, is I take this to be synonymous at large with what Jesus said in chapter 15 concerning His love. 15, 9, and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus has loved us, and we abide in that love. We abide in that already love by keeping His commandments. Keeping commandments is not the cause of Jesus' love. It's abiding in His love that already is. And so whenever we come in prayer to the Father in the name of the Son, this is not the cause of the Father's love. It is the Father's love. It's an abiding in His already love towards us. He's given us the Son as His love through which we come before Him. And whenever you cling to Christ with love and faith, you abide in that love that He's given you and draw near to Him. Now as an illustration of all that's being said here, listen afresh to what Jesus says in Luke 11, 5-13. And He said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, my children are in bed with me, or with me in bed, and I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Over he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father, here's what's really striking to me when you go to this passage, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit 
to those who ask him. Speaks of the heavenly father giving to children there. I don't think this is a reference to the father giving the spirit in regards to regeneration, the new birth, conversion, the sealing of the spirit. I think John 16 tells us the idea of what it means that the father will give the spirit to those who ask him. It's something like this. It's something that we pray, I hope, every time we gather. Lord, send your spirit to teach us your son. Such that your son is present teaching us you. And Jesus is telling us. Father, hears that prayer. Ask. Seek. Father hears that prayer. What confidence there is coming to the Father in the name of the Son, pleading for the Spirit. By the Spirit, we learn Christ. In Christ, we learn the Father. We learn the Father such that we cry out for the Spirit. And the Spirit sent to teach us Christ. Learning Christ, we draw near to the Father. You see this blessed circle of communion. This is communion with your triune God. This is what Christ came to establish by His blood. And finally, Jesus tells them He's going to the Father. Verse 28. He came from the Father, and He's going to the Father. Jesus is going to the Father. They will ask the Father. Christ teaches them the Father. And going at it in reverse, I hope you can see how these three are bound together. Because Jesus goes to the Father, the Spirit teaches you the Father. Such so that Christ is teaching you the Father. And you ask the Father. Again, it is good news. Jesus is telling them that He goes away. It's to their advantage. It's for their joy. It's for their peace. Because He's going away, they can draw near to the Father. Jesus' distance means they're drawing closer to the triune God. How do the disciples respond? The prologue opened with confusion. Lord, where are you going? Lord, why can I not follow you now? Confusion continues throughout the discourse. 14.5 Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? But now, now at the conclusion, now they claim Jesus is speaking plainly. And now, now, now they know. Jesus has been telling them all throughout this discourse later Later, later, and now they say, now. D.A. Carson writes, no misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. 
prematurely, these disciples replace confusion with confidence. Their knowledge is rooted more in self than it is the Spirit. This is not the teaching of the Spirit that Jesus was speaking of. Though I believe the Spirit was working in such a way, I believe they're learning something. I believe they learned something here that is what sustains them to not go more astray than they do in the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. Yes, they've learned something. But right now is not later. And so often, we too learn one little lesson in our sanctification. And we think we are but one more step away from glory for having learned it. We are like toddlers who having having taken a single step think we're ready to run. We are seminary students who having taken one course think we're ready to preach a church full. We are Calvinists who having learned but five points think we are now ready to convince every Arminian. I would almost say, almost say, it is better to remain humble and confessedly ignorant than gain a little knowledge and be proud. And the only reason I say almost is not because of something in us that begins to work out the problems there. It's simply that if we are the Lord's, He follows lessons in truth with lessons in humility so that the truth works its way all the way down. He lets knowledge ripen into sweet humility. If you learn any truth about God and it doesn't humble you, you haven't learned it fully yet. And get ready for the test that will show your ignorance. It's coming. The disciples confess two things. First, now they know that He knows all things. And second, this causes them to confess again. They believe then that He has come from God. Verse 30. Now again, I think their faith and confidence in this has grown. But it's presumptuous for them to think that now is later. Edward Clink writes... What their statement more accurately reveals, however, is not what they believe about Jesus, but what they believe about themselves. Now, we know. Dear Reformed Saints, don't let the little knowledge that you've come into serve as a platform. The little knowledge of glorious truths serve as a platform for you to boast about your knowledge. I ask you, as Paul asked the Corinthians in another matter, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do we know the little truth that we know? It's not because we've ascended in our sanctification. It's because Christ ascended into glory and sent the Spirit. Why do we know what we know? It's not because we've risen, but because the Spirit has been sent down to teach. 
Jesus answers them asking, Do you now believe? Now, it's clear as you read through the Gospels, they believe in Christ. But they've said, we know. They're saying that they know with the kind of knowing that Jesus has promised is waiting out there ahead. This strong faith. They know, they say. And Jesus says, do you now believe? Full faith is promised in light of the full gospel, and they are not there yet. The hour immediately before them here, this hour that is coming, is not one in which they will stand resolved, knowing they will be shaken, they'll be scattered. Matthew and Mark speak of this abandonment as, as fulfilling Zechariah 13, 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus will go to the cross alone. And yet, He's not alone. He says the Father's with Him. Yes, Jesus goes to the cross to be forsaken. This is why He is troubled in soul. Speaking to them now. It's why He'll cry out in agony in the garden. But Jesus knows that His going to the cross is not at cross purposes with the Father. As Jesus goes to the cross, He knows that truth that we saw in John 15.10. That He is abiding in the Father's love because He's going in obedience to the Father. So that even as He prepares Himself to take up the words of the 22nd Psalm on His lips, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He no doubt also has the words of Psalm 16 comforting and steadying His soul in obedience. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now consider with this the conundrum that Jesus has put before the disciples. They've confessed, we know that you know all things. And now the one who knows all things tells them, you'll all scatter and abandon me. So either they have to deny their confession, in which they say, we don't know all things, or they have to admit his words in which they don't know all things. Either way, they have to own this now. See the test that just was put before them? They have to own this. They don't know. How masterfully our Lord teaches humility and yet how slow we are to learn the lesson. I don't think Peter is alone. Yet once more in the garden. So after this point in the garden, Matthew 26, 33. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus doesn't end this discourse though with a rebuke. To these overconfident disciples. But once more putting. The promise that's been held forth in all of this before them. 
on the heels of the certainty of their desertion, Jesus promises them peace. Indeed, He tells them, I'm telling you these things, including this truth about your desertion, so that you will have peace. Then, then, when they remember these things and are taught by the Spirit, on that day, in that hour that Jesus has been speaking of, then they will know that He knows all things. Then, they will know that He has come from the Father. Then, they'll know that He has gone to the Father. Then, they'll know of His love. Then, they'll know more clearly the truth of John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. On that day, they'll be confident. Not because they know, but because Christ holds. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them, them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. They will know their faith will bloom. There will be peace. There will be joy. Christ is risen. The Spirit has been sent. They draw near to the Father. Peace. Jesus holds out two certainties here. In Him, peace. In the world, trouble. Now, how can you have peace in Christ when you do have trouble in the world? And the answer is assumed. The peace is superior to the trouble. Because Christ is superior to the world. He's conquered it. How has He conquered? He told them in John 12. Right before we entered into this upper room. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And that is followed by this explanatory statement. He said this to show by what kind of death. He was going to die. By the cross, Jesus defeats the ruler of this world. By the cross, the fate of this world is sealed. By the cross, He purchases a people to God and He will not lose one of them. By the cross, peace. By the cross, joy. By the cross, faith. All that troubles you. He's telling them his gospel. Take heart. Jesus opened this discourse saying, let not your hearts be troubled. And now he closes it telling them, take heart. Saints, we stand on the other side of this promised clarity. We have the spirit. We've received this spirit inspired testimony of Christ. We're taught by Christ, by the Spirit. And through Christ, as we learn Him, we draw near to the Father. These words are for our comfort. These words are for our peace. These words are for our joy. These words are for our faith. Take heart. Yes, you have troubles. And there will be confusion as you look to them, but look to Christ and hold firm to this clarity. This peace 
this unassailable, certain peace that is anchored in heaven and not on this earth. You have peace. You have the Spirit. You draw near to the Father through the Son. Let's pray. Take heart. Father, this is held out for us now in your word. May we hear this command joyfully. Take heart. May courage, faith, joy, peace wash over us now. As we take heart by taking up your word and faith, clinging to Christ therein. Drawing near to you. Father, we cry out that in this, that you, our triune God, have just been made so beautifully attractive to any lost soul here. And that your spirit would work now, such that they see Christ, the mediator, crucified and risen, ascended, is the only way to draw near to you, and that they do just that. They cling to him in faith. Because of your Spirit's work. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.